This is Brendan Long, and I'm today doing the third series of The Long View. It's a series of podcasts with important people, influential people, and we're talking about the economics of the COVID-19 crisis in particular. Um, I am a senior research fellow at the Australian Centre of Christianity and Culture, which is um, a research institute of Charles Sturt University in, in Canberra. Um, so my guest today is Simon Banks. Simon is a long, he is the managing director of Hawker Britain, uh, one of the more influential strategic thinking uh, groups in the country and is a long-term former uh, Labor, senior Labor staffer. So um, welcome Simon to the uh, Long View podcast. Glad to be here. So what I thought we might do to sort of open our conversation today is to have a little bit of a reflection on where we're going to be in the, on the 27th of September, which I think is the day where under current plans, the JobKeeper scheme is going to end. And, you know, in my mind is um, reporting from the ABS recently, about how businesses are saying they are operating on very low cash flows, many with a month's cash reserves, some with only three months cash reserves. Um, and that is in a JobKeeper world. So uh, I'm interested in your views about what are the immediate, what are, what's the challenges for government as a, as a whole when they have to come up against that decision as to whether they're going to stick with the current plan to, um, get rid of JobKeeper on the 27th, extend it or do whatever to it. So um, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the really big issues do you think that the government has to think about here? Yeah, I actually think it's worth going back a little bit, Brendan, and just yeah. sort of starting where I'm, I mean, obviously the first thing that drives whatever government will ultimately have to decide is where we're at with the virus itself. Um, and look, whilst the number of cases in Australia is still relatively uh, low and hopefully manageable, I guess the recent outbreak in Victoria, but we've seen it before with that outbreak in Northwest Tasmania, for example, you can't just assume you've got uh, the health situation under control. You've got to continue onto that. And that can have really significant impacts on the economy. Just one obvious one that may come up recent um, outbreak in Victoria is it may delay the opening of some of the state borders uh, across Australia and obviously that has significant impacts not only for business but particularly obviously for the tourism uh, sector which you know uh, is uh, is going to be doing it very tough over the period. Oh yeah I want to use my MCG membership this year right and um, you know <laughs> if I don't get to use it for a whole year then that's a problem. <laughs> well, Mark McGowan over in Western Australia is offering to host the, uh, the AFL Grand Final this year because at this stage, because they've been able to manage uh, the borders over there and the spread of the virus within the Western Australian community so successfully. They're, they're literally this weekend, effectively every second seat at their big stadiums will be allowed to be filled, which you know I think is a, is a great and wonderful thing that they've yeah. got to that, to that place. 
Then you've got to look at what are the kind of the policy instruments that we've got and what are they designed to do in this particular space? Well, there's obviously, you know, two of them. There's JobKeeper itself, which you've mentioned. There's also the JobSeeker uh, package, which is designed to, you know, help people who can't be in work at the moment. The government's got two big decisions it's got to make uh, around those. In relation to JobSeeker, I think you have to remember that government actually put that in place first. Uh, and I think if you go back and sequence it, um, I, I don't think the government actually really knew what it was doing when it put JobSeeker in place, uh, because I don't think it had designed and planned to put JobKeeper in place at the time that it, that it did. But it's gonna to have to make a decision about JobSeeker. I think whether we like it or not, I think it's pretty clear that they're going to reduce the amount of assistance the JobSeeker package provides. I think the real issue is, is it going to be more than the old new start allowance? I think it will be. It's just a question of how much more. So that sets a, an, an underpinning, if you like, for the debate, because obviously at the moment, if you can get $1,200 a fortnight under JobSeeker and $1,500 under JobKeeper, uh, clearly you'd rather be on JobKeeper than JobSeeker, but there isn't a massive gulf between the two. If there are big cuts, if there are big cuts to JobSeeker, well, then that, that starts to drive one set of ideas. The well, interesting to... aspect of that, this is that, um, you know, people have forgotten about this, but in the famous Tony Abbott's first budget, um, you know, Joe Hockey's first budget, which was a shocker, uh, one of the things they tried to deal with was this alignment of pensions and allowances and over time the indexation rate for pensions had been much higher at, at uh, AWOTI, whereas the average weekly total earnings, whereas um, obviously for Newstart, it was at the lower CPI rate. So the, or a rate close to the CPI rather. So the, um, you know, the, that was a massive problem. Now, I was thinking about this the other day, the government's got a unique opportunity to fix this now. Even if yeah. it does uh, reduce JobSeeker to a lower level, and I think most people think that in the long term, $1,200 for, as a, as a, you know, as a job search, as an unemployment um, benefit is a very generous benefit. Um, but um, if it's going, when it, when it considers the, wherever it goes to on this, I, I still think, you know, they should use the motto, never waste a good crisis. Let's finally fix that anomaly, you know? Yeah. Um, because I think one of the well, reasons, go on, yeah. You both agree. I mean, obviously like Newstart was too low uh, and yeah. obviously it had stayed under the current government. I think we have to be fair, you know, the Labor Party person, you know, the Labor Party hadn't fixed that when it was in government either, and I think that's something it should have yeah. done. Having said that, going into COVID, we had support right across the community. I mean, we had obviously, you know, ACOS, the ACTU, and the Business Council yeah. all arguing new start. Um, it simply wasn't providing enough support, not only for people to get by on a day-to-day basis, but then actually to make themselves job ready. And that's actually what we need to do. I've been an advocate, for example, about having an independent um, panel, a bit like we do with sort of wage setting, if you like, yeah. to actually those types of allowances to make sure that they're actually set at a decent and reasonable level yeah. that make the public policy purposes, which is it's one of basket of goods approach that um, Peter Saunders often talks about at the uh, University of New South Wales. And the, and the Blair government tried it actually too initially when it first started. No one's ever really been able to succeed in getting it. But, you know, in other words, a real measure of um, what is the cost of living and um, what is sort of a subsistence existence. Obviously, yeah. different in Sydney than it would be in, um, you know, in some other parts of the country. But, um, yeah, that's, I mean, 
wherever they go to that, you're right. I mean, they, they, they could choose a new basis for measuring job seeker. I mean, the old days, it, you know, notionally used to be worked on as, um, uh, you know, half median wages, and um, at least in terms of the age pension. Now, that's sort of, you know, we're still going to probably end up moving away from that, aren't we, really, you know, uh, in a new job seeker world anyway. Um, so they might need a new benchmark. Uh, well, they can just invent one, but I mean, it'd be better to have, uh, as you say, a, a, a basis for assessing what the level should sure. be. You, know. you, you would rather set on a rational basis and then it constantly be tested against the public policy purposes that it's there to do, which is to provide people you know, a reasonable standard of living and yeah. the capacity able to go and get work uh, if they can. Uh, I think that's what you want a payment of that nature to do. Anyway, that's sort of one component. Yeah. Then you've got obviously what you're going to do with job keeper. And again, I think you need to go back to what the purpose of that is all, all about. Now, putting aside some of the design issues, which obviously in part were done because it just had to be done in such a hurry and the government was focused on just having the payment, a very simple form of payment and it needed to acquire. Um, and putting aside the fact that there were clearly some parts of the community like casual workers, uh, people in universities and others who um, it should have extended the payment to at least in some form um, and didn't do it. When you look at the purpose of JobKeeper, what its job was to try and identify those workers who um, had some reasonable prospect of maintaining their employment on the, on the other side of COVID, um, making sure that those businesses could continue to keep them and the connection with their employer for as long as was reasonably possible. Uh, and then obviously, hopefully, they just get back to some form of normal work at the end of the day, and then the payment gradually um, you know, disappears from underneath it. I think there are a couple of really basic things in terms of all of that. The first is, I think we just have to be really honest with ourselves that come September, there will be some workers who their jobs just no longer exist and there is no reasonable prospect of them existing. And I think the, what the government needs to look at is what are other job creation projects that yeah. we can engage in, try and shift those workers into real work. I don't think leaving people, for example, um, you know, some of the JobKeeper people are, are basically in what are called zombie jobs. They'll never yeah. be returned working zero hours today and they're, and they're never coming back. That's not fair on those individuals to leave them in that for the long term, nor is it not fair to the wider community to do that either. On the, on the flip side, you've clearly got some businesses that are getting back to whatever the new normal uh, is going to be. And we're getting an increasing idea of what that looks like as, uh, as we gradually manage the virus. Um, and obviously for those people, a system should gradually you know, fall away. I think there's um, kind of a two middle categories in between. One is that there is about how quickly you withdraw the yeah. assistance of JobKeeper, where there is some prospect of sort of future employment or ongoing employment. Um, I think just driving it off a cliff um, is not a particularly smart move, particularly for those workers where there's still some uncertainty about their financial position. Uh, I think it, one of the features of JobSeeker, which was um, JobKeeper, is it gave six months worth of certainty. Um, uh, so giving people some more certainty for, in those categories, I think would be really useful, even if that's a tapering of the benefit over time. So you don't get that kind of personal and collective fiscal cliff that, that people from the Reserve Bank, the business community and others are, are, are warning about. Well, if you went straight, think, off, straight off job, job, keep, jobs uh, keeper, 
and, and perhaps job seeker at a similar time frame without an adjustment to the definitions of who is unemployed. I mean, you look at it and <laughs> you'd have an enormous unemployment rate, you know. And um, so what are we now estimating that the real unemployment rate is 14%? Um, yeah. It could be higher. Could be yeah. higher, you know, uh, which is genuinely scary. Um, but, um, you know, that's... So, I, I, you know, you can see... I don't know what people, um, you know, what government research has, is picking up, but I wouldn't be surprised if people were genuinely fearful about that world, you know, um, and it's not far away, you know, uh, September is not a long way. So I, I sort of agree with you. I think the idea of a cliff is, is more or less unthinkable economically, um, let alone politically. You know? um, yeah. uh, and uh, that's the dilemma that, that the government faces. But um, the, um, on the other side, I mean, I've got um, my 21-year-old uh, my who is getting $1,500 a week JobKeeper was really only earning about $150 a week before at the Canberra Labor Club is <laughs> probably going to uh, um, yeah, is, is going to sort of mourn the passing of the scheme. But like I, I noticed, Joe, uh, I noticed that Jared Dwyer, who made a representation to the COVID committee this week, raised a number of really interesting anomalies with Job Keeper. And the question mm. I think a little bit is whether the government has any scope to tweak it. For example, what um, Mr. Dwyer indicated, and he's the uh, General Secretary of the, the, um, the Shop and Distributed Allies Employees Union, the Retail Union, um, that if you had, there were a number of people who had a part-time job, but they didn't earn much money from it, but they earned a, a fair bit of money out of a casual job. But because of that small part-time job, they um, completely were ineligible for a job keeper. And yeah. they were probably the ones that should have got it most, you know, even and having been employed for, you know, long-term casual. So, I mean, is there scope, do you think, for government to tweak it as it phases it down? Or is, you know, are we just going to have to live with these sort of anomalies? Well, certainly I think that type of anomaly, I mean, you know, the Labor Party's actually been arguing that the government should fix oh. that one and better to to people, whether it's casuals or others. I mean, one of the perverse things the government's done by excluding so many of the casual workforce uh, in this arrangement is it's created this massive premium in the job market around actually having some form of a permanent job. Yeah. I mean, if you have a job today and you had a choice between a casual job and a permanent job, uh, you would clearly now choose a permanent job, not, not just because of um, uh, you know, other reasons. If you're kind of genuinely tossing up between the two. The reason why you'd do it is because you'd know if there was another COVID outbreak and you're a casual, you'd yeah. get nothing. Whereas yeah. if you're a permanent, you've got a chance of some protection or insurance. So perversely, you know, a government that likes to pretend it likes flexibility in the workforce has just told the entire workforce that a permanent job is infinitely more valuable to you because of the insurance and protection that it provides. So, um, yeah, that's a really obvious and a strange, I think, philosophical yeah. way in which the government's gone about it. But if you then come back to, to I guess, you know, what, what can the government do, which is that um, I think one of the first things it needs to do is provide, you know, certainty for employers. And I think one of the mistakes it's made, for example, with its childcare package is changing that halfway through, is that there will be some of those employers that were reliant upon having the JobKeeper package for six months and now aren't going to get it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's 
less certainty and confidence. Of course, there might be other childcare providers that prefer the new arrangement, but they really should have given um, employers a choice, I think, if you were going to change those arrangements. I think the next thing is, is that it'll be clear for some sectors where they're you know, on the path to mending, if you like, but some assistance is still needed. But you may not decide that JobKeeper is the best way to do that. There might be other forms of assistance you can provide to that sector, which um, are, are a more effective way of keeping people in employment and keeping that sector um, going. And again, that, that assistance could be stuff that tapers out over time. But there are going to be some sectors of the workforce, and you know, I mentioned earlier the sort of the tourism sector, where we know that at some point we're going to bring back um, uh, tourism both domestically and hopefully ultimately internationally. We know that we want to have uh, you know, a highly skilled and capable sector. Australia, let's face it, is going to be a highly desirable destination for people to, to come to. Where we, we already kind of went into COVID with a relatively sort of clean green image as far as the rest of the world's mm. concerned. How that's been bolstered by this is a healthy place to come to as well. Um, so there may be some of those sectors where, you know, they're not going to get up and running for maybe another six months, 12 months even, where, you know, perpetuating job keeper in some form uh, might, be, might be an option. One interesting idea that's out there from the ANU at the moment is about having for some of these types of workers a kind of a hex style scheme where... Like yes, government... yes. Um, you know, uh, the income contingent loans. I mean, you know, they're, they're so trendy. I mean, I, I'm a, us economists want to make everything an income contingent loan. <laughs> but, um, you know, the um, so um, I'm not surprised he's gone for it. But you like that model? Well, I, I think it's an interesting one to explore. The yeah. one concern I with it is that whilst in theory I understand what might be attractive, I what you're saying with businesses, we know you're going to have some income down the track. We'll basically give you some credit now, and when the income comes, then you can you can pay the loan back and you'll be okay. I think one of the big problems in this uncertain environment, and we're seeing this already with a bunch of the programs, um, other sort of um, support programs the government's running, is most people just don't want to go into more debt because they yeah. don't know they're really taking on. So whilst I think in theory uh, that may not be a bad model, I think you'd really have to sit down with the, any affected sector and say, are you really prepared to take this risk? I mean, I sort of like the model, to be honest, but uh, we have this thing, you know, this theory called adverse selection. And basically it means that, uh, you know, the government doesn't really know um, whether this firm who wants the extra money to survive is really bona fide a, a, a firm that is going to continue, or is it really effectively a zombie firm just you know being propped up by the JobKeeper? Uh, yeah, and and those sort of informational uncertainties, informational asymmetries, just can't really be known. So there's always, there's a high degree of risk for government, but I think you know as as you know, I I do share that sort of broad uh, social justice Labor Party view and. You know, in this situation, the thing that I think must worry us most is not so much the perfect economic model, but the enormous personal cost that's happening to people's lives. Obviously, we've avoided the massive costs to uh, health and life that uh, uh, many European countries in the US and Brazil are now facing. But, um, you know, the devastation from the recession, which we've sort of created by uh, policy, is um, you know, I think he's going to last for many years. And so I think we should err on the side of 
the compassionate approach. So, you know, yep. uh, I think if Ryan McKibben offers that as a model, I think that's something, something that I think Australians would probably be open to, you know. Um, and they're also used to it with the, you know, the university thing. I just want to divert a little bit into an ACT issue because here we are in Canberra, both of us long-term Canberrans. And, um, you know, I, like yourself, have used to do a fair bit of air travel, usually at least once a week, and um, for many years, but no, no, <laughs> no air travel now. So, um, you know, uh, I do think there's an, an interesting case being made by Canberra Airport, which is obviously worried about keeping its staff as well as a fairly big employer in the city. Uh, you know, whether it, we shouldn't be thinking harder about trying to have that trouble bubble with um, New Zealand and get that weekly flight to Wellington from Canberra. Um, you know, to me, given where we're both at, well, I think that's an interesting, you know, an interesting way of providing a bit of safe stimulus to the ACT economy. What, what's your view on that? Well, I, I, personally, I think it would be great if it could um, if it could happen. I've got, so I've got an office over in New Zealand, which I'm ah. going to go and visit. Also, you know, there, there you go. You can do some um, snowboarding. <laughs> so, I can snowboard, actually. But <laughs> I don't, I don't, it'd be a long way to go for a snowboard. But anyway, go on. Um, uh, I, I, you know, in principle, I think it would be it would be lovely. I think the reality, though, is if you look at the response from New Zealand to this, which is actually we're the ones taking the risk, not you. Yeah. yeah. So I think they're going to be far more cautious about uh, agreeing to an arrangement uh, like that. So unfortunately, because effectively we're in the, the sort of the New South Wales Victorian, um, uh, you know, travel bubble within Australia, uh, if New Zealand was to take a selective approach to jurisdictions that they opened up to, I think it's far more likely they'd go for, you know, Queensland or Western Australia or one of those places before, unfortunately, they came to the ACT. Um, that said, I think we should always have the offer on, on the table in case they're prepared to, uh, to offer it up to us. I think the far more interesting stuff where I think the ACT government's shown really great leadership is about trying to get some of the international students back uh, yeah. into the market. Um, you know, yes, they'll need to go through a period of quarantine before they um, before they're allowed out into the community. But you know, so much of the Canberra economy is built around that uh, that knowledge, skills, um, investment that that so many international students have. Yeah, um, and they can be quarantined at the university itself in many ways. You know, within that student accommodation block, which uh, um, so um, so yeah. I mean, it's a uh, and the idea of charter flights is good. I mean, that's one of the cases I think where government worked quickly with. Um, with industry in this case, uh, universities to um, you know come up with a creative solution that, that really worked, uh, or I think is going to work. Um, yes. Yeah, so and that's good for the city. Yeah. Oh well. Okay. So no flight to Wellington for a while. A little thing we think. Okay. Well, it might be a little bit longer, but uh, but look, I still. Well, I hope that I hope that at least uh, they open the flights to the Gold Coast. Right? So at some stage, but maybe that's just a reflection of where we are in this bitter Canberra winter. Simon, it's tremendous to speak to you and to get your insights, particularly your sense of where we are, where the issues the government faces, as it's got to try to consider where we take this incredibly difficult um, situation we find ourselves in uh, as, a, um, as an economy, as a world, but particularly as an economy in Australia at the moment. So thanks for joining us and giving us your insights today to The Long View. Pleasure. <laughs>